Our patients need feeding, but what should we be aiming for? How do we start? What methods do we use? What are our goals? Let's find out. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. This one's come out quite quickly since the last one, and the main reason for that is because I had an interesting conversation at the Intensive Care Society State of the Art Conference 2016 about the Aspen and Society of Critical Care Medicine Nutrition Guidelines, and it's a podcast I want to release fairly soon. So what I'm doing in this particular episode is summarising those guidelines so that it helps you reference them in the podcast you'll listen to in the conversation I had with Danny Bear uh, and Todd and Roger Harris at the conference. So without further ado, let's go on. I've summarised them for you. I hope you find this useful and we'll speak again at the end. So the first topic to cover is nutrition assessment and there's a recommendation of the nutrition risk screening NRS stroke Nutric score for all patients who are expected not to be able to have sufficient volitional intake. Of all the other scores used these are the only ones that determine both nutrition status and disease severity. So the NRS score is less than three um, is a patient at risk and those at high risk with an NRS score equal to or greater than 5. If interleukin 6 is measured this value would be greater than 6 in the Nutrix score however as there are re rarely the facilities to measure this value then a value of 5 or greater indicates high risk in the Nutrix score also. It's anticipated that ultrasound will emerge as a useful tool in measuring muscle mass and determining changes in muscle tissue and even CT scans of the skeletal muscle could be done. Both of these will not be too common currently due to cost and lack of trained personnel. However, it is an inspiration towards the future. The same could be said of indirect calorimetry measurements which are also recommended. Where there is an absence of indirect calorimetry then energy requirements should be calculated using published predictive equations or simplistic weight based equations. Even where indirect calorimetry is available it is prone to error in the ICU due to the presence of air leaks or chest tubes, supplemental oxygen, ventilator settings and renal replacement therapy. However calculated Energy expenditure should be re-evaluated at least once per week. With most critically ill patients, it's acceptable to initiate NG feeding, whilst those at risk of aspiration should have feeding initiated lower down the GI tract. If small bowel access is difficult, then feeding should be initiated in the stomach rather than weight. EN can be given to those stable patients on low-dose vasopressors, but should be withheld on patients who are hypertensive, have catecholamine agents, or who are requiring escalating doses to maintain stability. For patients on vasopressors, any sign of gut intolerance, um, e.g. abdominal distension, increasing NG output, decreased passage of stool and flatus, hypoactive bowel sounds, increasing metabolic acidosis, um, should mean that EN should be withheld. As far as the dosing of EN, patients at low risk with normal baseline nutrition and low, low disease severity, an NRS of less than or equal to 3, or a Nutric less than or equal to 5, who cannot maintain volitional in, in, intake, do not require specialised nutrition therapy. They should be offered oral intake and reassessed daily. 
Trophic or full EN is appropriate for patients with acute lung, in, lung, lung injury or ARDS and those expected to have a ventilation period greater than 72 hours. In the high-risk patient, efforts should be made to provide greater than 80% of target within 48 to 72 hours. Studies have shown that greater than 50 to 60% of goal energy may be required to prevent increases in intestinal permeability and systemic infection in burn and bone marrow patients, promote faster cognitive return in head injury patients, and to reduce mortality in high-risk hospitalised patients. So what about monitoring tolerance and adequacy of enteral nutrition? And for me, this is one of the main points to come out of this document. So just some facts first that were in the document. 97% of nurses assess tolerance by gastric residual volumes alone, and I'm going to call those GRVs. The most frequently cited thresholds for withholding feed were 200 to 250 mils. Less than half of patients ever reach their target goal energy intake during their ICU stay. And cessation of EN occurs in greater than 85% of patients for an average of 8 to 20% of the infusion time. And this is in bold. Uh, raising the cutoff value for GRVs from a lower number of 50 to 150 mils to a higher number of 250 to 500 mils does not increase the incidence of regurgitation, aspiration or pneumonia. And indeed the use of GRVs leads to enteral access clogging, inappropriate cessation of EN, consumption of nursing time and may adversely affect outcomes through reduced volume of EN delivered. So the recommendation from this document is that GRVs should not be used and if they are used the cutoff should be 500 mils and the patient should be monitored for other signs of intolerance which I've already covered above. Another area which drew my attention especially was the recommendation that there should be a volume based feeding protocol which should be ICU or nurse driven. These protocols would define goal EN infusion rate, designate more rapid startups and provide specific orders for handling GRVs, frequency of flushes and conditions under which EN may be adjusted or stopped. Such strategies have shown to increase the overall percentage of energy provided. And I've got the resources um, that refer to this GRV um, on the blog post that goes along with this uh, podcast. So the, the links are there, there's three particular doc documents that I link to. And the aim of the protocols is to empower nurses to increase feeding rates to make up for volume lost while EN is held. So the protocol is very much nurse-led, um, how, how you feed, and it's about getting a volume in within 24 hours rather than necessarily setting an hourly rate. Because the problem then becomes that the nurse may switch the feed off for one reason or another, once, twice, three, four, five times per day. Um, then the patient is denied that feed for those hours. The feed then goes back at the same rate it was on before, and we've lost some time for feeding during the day. We go on to talk about aspiration. So aspiration is always of great concern in the intensive care patient and the guidelines acknowledge this. Patients should be risk for, assessed for risk of aspiration which may be identified as a number of factors. So the risk factors for uh, aspiration are inability to protect the airway, presence of a nasoenteric enteral access device, mechanical ventilation, age greater than 70 years, reduced level of consciousness, poor oral care, inadequate nurse-patient ratio, supine positioning, neurologic deficits, gastroesophageal reflux, transport out of ICU, and use of bolus intermittent EN. And that 
covers a lot of my patients. So where there is a risk of aspiration, the patient should be fed beyond the pylora, so NJ feeding. They should not be fed by bolus EN, and there should be the use of prokinetics, and those prokinetics would include metoclopramide and erythromycin. Whilst not improving long-term ICU outcomes, these drugs have been shown to improve gastric emptying. And there's a lot of indications for aspiration, aren't there, as, as I've just gone through. So, that, like I say, that covers a lot of my patients, and I think that makes the decision process a bit difficult sometimes. Nursing measures such as head, eleva head elevation between 30 to 45 degrees and the use of chlorhexidine mouthwashes are recommended. Other steps to decrease aspiration risk include reducing the level of sedation analgesia when possible and minimising transport out of ICU for diagnostic tests and procedures, although personally I think we only ever take patients out of ICU for tests when absolutely necessary. I don't think we take them out willy-nilly um, and there's always a very good reason to do so. So enteral feeding should not be discontinued due to the presence of diarrhoea until other causes have been investigated and these could include the type and amount of fibre in the formula, the osmolality of the formula, the delivery mode, uh, medications which may cause the diarrhoea such as antibiotics, PPIs, prokinetics, glucose lowering agents, um, non-steroidals, SSRIs and laxatives are some of the ones they mentioned and then the presence of obviously C. diff. And the assessment of diarrhoea should then include abdominal examination, quantification of stool, stool culture for C. diff, serum electrolytes and review of the medications before you then start thinking it's the feed, let's turn it off. <clears throat> so what about selection of an appropriate enteral formulation and adjunctive therapy? There's a recommendation to start with standard feed when initiating EN as there has been no clear benefit shown to using specialty formulas in areas such as the surgical ICU or medical ICU. They also do not recommend the use of immune modulation formulations. They make no recommendations around the use of fish oils, borage oil and antioxidants in patients with ARDS and acute lung injury due to conflicting data. Consideration needs to be given to the use of mixed fibre formulation in those patients with persistent diarrhoea. Such a formulation is not recommended for routine use in the patient to promote bowel regularity. There is no recommendation as to the use of probiotics in the general ICU population. The use of probiotics would seem theoretically sound according to them but there has not been a consistent benefit demonstrated. Antioxidants, vitamin E and C and trace materials might be useful especially in burns, trauma and critical illness requiring mechanical ventilation. Finally they recommend that glutamine is not added routinely. Outcomes from the use of glutamine showed no significant benefit on mortality, infections or hospital length of stay. When to use parenteral nutrition? In the low nutrition risk patient where early EN is not feasible, then PN should be withheld for the first seven days, whereas in the patient at high nutrition risk in the same circumstances, then parenteral nutrition should be started as early as possible. In the patient where EN is not meeting greater than 60% of their needs, then PN should be started after 7 to 10 days. They then go on to talk about nutrition support in particular conditions. And I haven't picked out all the conditions, but I've picked out the ones that uh, I feel are most relevant to my practice and probably to most of you out there as well. So where the patient's demonstrating some um, elements of pulmonary failure, a specialty high-fat, low-carbohydrate formulations designed to manipulate the respiratory quotient and reduce carbon dioxide production are not recommended in ICU patients with acute respiratory failure. 
Recommendation is made for the use of fluid-restricted energy-dense formulations in this group of patients and also that the serum phosphate levels should be monitored closely. Phosphate is crucial in the synthesis of ATP and 2,3-DPG, which are both crucial for normal diaphragmatic contractility and optimal pulmonary function. Renal and hepatic failure. Patients in acute renal failure or acute kidney injury should be put on a standard formula. If significant electrolyte disturbances occur, then formulations designed for renal failure should be considered. Those patients on continuous renal replacement therapy should receive increased protein as significant amino acid loss is associated with continuous renal replacement therapy. A dry weight should be used instead of an actual weight in the patient in hepatic failure when determining energy and protein requirements. This then accounts for the possibly significant ascites and edema they may be suffering. EN should be used in preference to parenteral nutrition in the patient with hepatic failure and a standard formulation should be used. Acute pancreatitis. Disease state may change quickly in this condition so frequent reassessment is needed. For those patients with mild acute pancreatitis, specialised nutritional therapy is not recommended but an effort to work towards normal oral intake instead. For those with moderate to severe pancreatitis, an NG tube should be inserted and there should be efforts made to advance to goal within 24 to 48 hours after admission. Standard formula should be used in the severe pancreatitis patient and EN is preferred to PN as it had been shown in several studies and meta-analysis to reduce mortality, length of stay and surgical interventions and I do link to a couple of those studies in the blog post as well. In moderate to severe patients who have an intolerance to EN, measures should be taken to reduce the intolerance such as starting EN as early as possible to minimise the period of ileus, diverting level of EN more distally, so an NJ tube for example, change to a formula that contains small peptides or one that is nearly fat free, and switch from bolus to continuous, and probiotics should be added for this type of patient. In sepsis, EN therapy should be introduced within 48 hours from diagnosis when resuscitation is complete and the patient is hemodynamically stable. In the acute phase, where possible, EN should be used exclusively. There's no recommendation regarding selenium, zinc and antioxidant supplementation. A recommendation is made for trophic feeding for the initial phase of sepsis advancing to 80% within the first week and there should be delivery of 1.2 to 2 grams protein per kilogram per day. In the chronically critically ill, and I've just done a podcast about that, this is defined as those with persistent organ dysfunction requiring ICU length of stay greater than 21 days. And if you listen to the previous podcast, you'll know that the definition of chronically critically ill is a bit up there at the minute. But they should be managed with aggressive high protein enteral nutrition therapy. In a series of studies, patients demonstrated chronic inflammation and a maladaptive immune response that contributed to secondary nosocomial infections and severe protein catabolism, which is why we add the high protein to their nutrition. And then obesity and critical illness. Early EN should start within 24 to 48 hours. There is no difference between this type of patient and those who are not obese. 50% of hospitalised patients with a BMI of greater than 25 show signs of malnutrition. 57% of hospitalised patients with a BMI of greater than 25 show signs of malnutrition. And yes, I did say that twice deliberately. And I feel a couple of quotes directly from the document are needed here to help me reinforce a couple of key points. So quote one. The reasons for the surprisingly high rate of malnutrition 
in obese patients may stem in part from unintentional weight loss early after admission to the ICU and a lack of attention from clinicians who misinterpret the high BMI to represent additional nutritional reserves that protect the patient from insult. Second quote. The obesity paradox may contribute to clinicians' illusion that obese patients do not need nutrition therapy early in their ICU stay. The mortality curve for BMI is U-shaped, with the mortality highest in class 3 severely obese patients with BMI greater than 40, and in people with a BMI less than 25. Mortality is lowest in subjects with a BMI in the range of 30 to 40, which is class 1 and 2 obesity. This protective effect of moderate obesity is the obesity paradox. And this section of the document highlights a number of the problems that obese patients in the ICU will have, such as technical difficulties of management, and by that vascular access, performing tracheostomy, interpreting radiologic images. They'll have altered drug metabolism. They'll have a predisposition to heart failure. They'll probably have respiratory abnormalities because of the shape. They may have liver, liver pathology, such as a non-alcoholic fatty liver, uh, steatosis, which is accumulation of fat in the liver, or cirrhosis. And compared to their lean part counterparts, they're going to have an increased morbidity, greater incidence of infection, prolonged hospital and ICU length of stay, increased risk of organ failure, and a longer duration of mechanical ventilation. And as a consequence of all these factors, there is a recommendation for the nutrition assessment of the obese patient to focus on evidence of central adiposity, metabolic syndrome, sarcopenia, which is the loss of skeletal muscle mass, SIRS, and other comorbidities that correlate with higher obesity-related risk for cardiovascular disease and mortality. And that, again, is almost a direct quote from the document itself. There's a recommendation for high-protein, hypocaloric feeding to preserve lean body mass, mobilize adipose stores, and minimize the metabolic complications of overfeeding. Promotion of weight loss is achieved by aiming for 60-70% to 70 of target energy requirements. Some degree of weight loss may increase insulin sensitivity, facilitate nursing care, and reduce risks of comorbidities. And due to the intentional permissive underfeeding of the obese patient, there should be additional monitoring to assess for worsening of hyperlipidemia, hyperglycemia, hypercapnia, fluid overload, and hepatic fat accumulation. I think it's really important to state that these are guidelines only. Each patient should be assessed individually and care should be taken to account, take account of the units they are being nursed in and the resources that are available, both financial and personnel. And they're very extensive, these guidelines. This is really only a brief summary. There's an awful lot more to them. And if you do want to read them, um, just type in um, Aspen Stroke uh, Society of Critical Care Medicine Nutrition Guidelines into Google and it'll take you there. And I've also linked to it on the blog post that goes with this podcast. So that's a summary of the guidelines. And that forms a good basis for us to then go on and listen to the conversation we had at the conference uh, with Danny Bear, the dietitian. Um, Todd, who was over from America, that also spoke about some of the features of the guidelines, and Roger Harris, um, who is also involved with the SMAC conference, which is in Berlin this year. Um, so the episode should be released fairly soon as a follow-on to this one, so please go and listen to it. Go ahead and listen to the next one, and you might find that very useful as well. The transcript of this podcast is on my website uh, with the show notes, so criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, as the lady tells you at the end. Um, just look for podcasts and you'll find it there. 
So I hope that's useful for you, and we'll speak again soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, tweet us at ccpractitioner, find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner, or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. I